history of Freemasonry in Washington, D.C. Out of everywhere in the United States, I've got to say that is one of the places that captivates my mind the most in regards to Masonry. Well, tonight we're going to take a deep dive into just what that history is and how it impacts Freemasonry as a whole. We have a wonderful guest on with us tonight to walk us through just that. So stick with us because we have an excellent show for you right after this on Historical Life. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers. Happy to be back. And we have with us an excellent guest this evening, Brother Chris from Washington, D.C. My brother, if you don't mind, I'm going to hand it over to you for a more formal introduction. Sure. Thanks, Brother Alex. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, good evening, everyone. Probably, probably start with good evening and then start. Uh, <laughs> that's how this presentation is going to go. Um, yeah, my name is Chris. I am a Washington, D.C.-based Mason. Uh, I'm a Masonic researcher, historian. Uh, I serve as the, I'm the former Grand Historian of the Grand Lodge of D.C. I'm the current historian and archivist for the Valley, the Scottish Rite Valley of Washington, D.C., the York Rite bodies, uh, as well as the Grand Commandery, Grand Chapter, Grand Council, um, and other Masonic-related, uh, you know, membership and historical-based organizations. So, pleased to be here and looking forward to talking with you and answering any questions that we get. A hundred percent, man. I'm so happy that you uh, agreed to join us this evening. I can't sure. wait to pick your brain on this stuff. So. We usually start these episodes off with a little bit of an icebreaker just to get to know you before we dive into the uh, content itself. So if you don't mind, what is it that got you into Freemasonry to begin with? So um, I moved to Washington, D.C. I'm originally from the New Jersey, New York area. I moved to D.C. Um, I think it's more than 10 years now uh, and started, you know, just trying to find a social network, friends, a community of people outside of work, of course. And so uh, I uh, went to school back in high school. I had a music teacher who was a Mason. And every, I think it was every Wednesday, like the first Wednesday of each month, he would wear this golden ring. And I was like, what the heck, what the heck is that thing? Um, and then I later find out that he was a Mason. At that time, he was going through the degrees and going through the catechism. It never really connected. You know, I was in high school. I didn't really understand what that was. Um, and then uh, he, I sort of thought about it, heard about it, and then, you know, uh, came down to D.C. And I think I walked past one of the Masonic temples. I think it was the House of the Temple. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's that Freemasonry thing. I should really, you know, now that I'm stabilized, I've, I've got this new job. I just got out of, you know, my graduate school. Um, and, and then I started looking around. I found a lodge in D.C. that I really liked. Uh, and I still like, and lots of cool guys there. And so that's how I started uh, masonry. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. So 
I'm going to switch the next one up because we usually dive into family history and all, but I'm really curious with your positions and you being a history nerd, it's kind of a fashion, uh, like a dream of mine to have that sort of position and just be able to dive in the way. But how was it in your experience to serve as grand historian in such a prominent area? So much history. Yeah, being grand historian in Washington D.C. is sort of like being a kid in a candy shop, you know, because you've <laughs> got house, I mean, you've got the you've got the House of the Temple on 16th Street. You have the D.C. Scottish Rite Center, just a, a, you know, I think a mile north. Beautiful buildings, um, gorgeous architecture. The, the people there are always interested in, and happy to help uh, work with you. Uh, you know, you have the legacy of doing a lot of research on cornerstone laying ceremonies and presidents of the United States. And, and so there it, it's, I, I'm very lucky, I think. Um, and, and because the district is like, uh, you know, Carl Claudie, one of the, the former secretary, executive secretaries of the Masonic uh, Service Association, he called it the you know, Masonic capital or the, the federal Masonic capital of the world because there's so many cornerstone. So right. there's so many presidents and, and non-presidents who engaged with, uh, sorry, presidents and non-Freemason presidents who engaged with the Masons. And so there's just so much stuff. I think I told my wife this, that I will spend the rest of my life, if I can, doing research on DC Freemasonry. I, I like, don't, I can't even tell you anything about New York or California or any of these other, like I'm so focused on just doing the DC stuff that, you know, it, it just, it'll take a lifetime. I, yeah, it makes total sense because I'm that guy in Kansas and is. Kansas is nowhere near what you've got in DC, but I get so consumed just with Kansas. I, I can right. only imagine uh, with everything you got there, the amount of people that have belonged through there uh, yeah. through the years that, yeah, there's just so much content to work through. Right. So I wanted to bring up and get your opinion on something that sure. uh, brother Art DeHorius posted today. And I'm going to share here. Oh, yes. So, yeah, this is really unfortunate. We were out in D.C. just a few months back for a good friend of mine, Brother Joe Martinez, being installed right. as master of his lodge. That's right. And had the opportunity to go over and see the House of the Temple. Unfortunately, didn't get to go inside because they were closed that day. But got to see this stuff in person for the first time ever. So I was yes. really distraught this morning when I saw these photographs. I know you guys up there have dealt with vandalism before, but... I mean, this was total destruction of the front here. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite frankly shocked uh, at that behavior. I'm, I, I don't want to say that I'm surprised, right? Because if you remember, I think it was last year or maybe two years ago, my mind about COVID is really stretched. I don't remember if it was last year or the, a year before, two years before, but the, they tore down the Pike statue. Now, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, let me, let's, let's, you know, it's, it's 20, you know, we're, <laughs> We're in the modern world. I certainly understand the context of that statue, the individual. We have to really focus on the context of, of why that statue was in the first place. Um, and so it was, it, was, it was a surprise to me back then. Like, my God, they're, they're tearing down this statue. Definitely. Uh, protests. And so to me, that sort of is a reminder um, of, of that, what happened last year or two years ago when they tore down that statue. Um, now the sphinxes don't have the civil war legacy <laughs> the sphinxes right. don't have the sort of um terror terrible historical context that might alienate people 
So I think it came out of, I suspect it came out of someone who, either a group or, or one person who didn't realize the context, didn't know what these things were, or went on YouTube or something sure. and thought this is representative of some nefarious thing. Um, and I'm really disappointed that they did that. I'm really disappointed that, you know, uh, that it appears there. I hope that the Supreme Council, whatever they do, I hope that they do it in a way that, um, you know, uh, doesn't alienate brothers, doesn't provide a political agenda. Let's clean it up. Let's focus on continuing to do Masonic work. Let's focus on strengthening, you know, the community, our, ourselves, our brothers, rather than making it something that must be talked about, must be a political movement. You know, we have to do something about this and, and get Masons energized. I think they should look internally, focus on the values that we inculcate and find a way of strengthening and helping each other out while they fix that part you know, of, of the Most movement. definitely. Fully agree. Yeah. And just before we move on here, I do want to share the little bit of history that Brother Art uh, included there on the Sphinxes, because yeah. uh, being a historical program, uh, yeah. I feel like I'm doing a disservice not to. Uh, but he included in here, he said, well, two years ago today, on June 3rd, 2020, he reported about the vandals who had spray painted BLM for Black Lives Matter uh, on the House of the Temple. Today, however, I was uh, sadder, or I have sadder news to report. Vandals have severely damaged the two sphinxes. But then he goes on to say the sphinxes were carved on site by master sculptor Adolf Weinman, yes. who was also a U.S. coin designer and engraver. He's best remembered for the uh, for creating the Mercury Dime and Walking Liberty Half Dollar, which yeah. is really cool. Absolutely, and in fact, if you go to the Library of Congress website, and I, I wish I if we if I knew we were going to talk about this, I'd get the photograph. But there is a beautiful old photograph of the huge block that that they were they so they moved the huge blocks the Sphinxes onto their current location, and then they started working on it. So they actually have the full like squared blocks of the really yes and it's a great photograph um and in fact it might also if, if my memory serves me right i also found a photograph on it in it in a local newspaper in town of washington dc when they were talking about oh these big you know massive limestones i think it's limestone structures are being set up in front of the temple and they're going to start working on cutting it up and and it's going to eventually turn into a sphinx so uh, the Library of Congress does have those photos of them installing, and it's gorgeous. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, we'll try to give. Uh, we'll try to get those found, and we'll put them yeah. in the notes, uh, show notes for the episode here. Excellent. All right. Well, where before we move on to the the meat of the episode, I want to give everybody a chance first and foremost, as we always do, for you to join the team here at Historical Light. We want to give a huge thank you uh, to our current Patreons and sponsors. And if you would like to help us keep the show going, we are fully viewer funded and been going on since 2016, and want to keep growing that mission to illuminate our past and help everyone understand Masonic history and how that can enlighten us today as well. So you can do that by going to Historical light.com backslash support and it will take you to our patreon page where you can pay through paypal as well so if that's what you want to do you can use the qr code there or go to the website historicallight.com backslash support we also want to tell you guys MasonicCon Kansas is right around the corner uh, we are down to the wire August 27th is the date and we have a few tickets left that we really need to sell 
for the Founders Club, the full pass that's in person, gets you the entire day access to the vendors, the speakers, the festive board, the swag, all of it. So if you guys are interested in coming out for an epic day of Masonic education, uh, check us out, MasonicConKansas.com. We'd love to have you. My brother, I want to thank you so much before we get started for coming on. I've, I've been really, really excited to hear about this. I, coming into Freemasonry, Washington, D.C. is like that first bit that's always thrown at you. And there's so much there to unpack from the way that the city's laid out to just the mere history itself between the lodges. Um, so I'm really, really excited uh, to get this topic going. I'm going to kind of hand it to you and let you go off and I will have some questions as we continue. Sure. Well, I, you know, instead of doing this long, boring presentation that everyone's probably heard, I thought I'd share a couple interesting points along the way of things that I found very either significant, something to talk about, something that perhaps uh, will trigger some Masons to go, hey, this, I'm going to learn more about this and have them go and do their own little research. And, Definitely. Uh, yeah. So here, thank you for bringing up the first slide. So, um, the history of Freemasonry in the District of Columbia, unlike Boston, unlike New York, unlike Philadelphia, unlike these older established you know, cities, the history of the District of Columbia really begins, and Freemasonry, really begins in 1790 with the formation or the establishment of the, the, um, the Act in Congress to establish the District of Columbia, the Residence Act. 1790. Now, there was a Masonic Lodge before the Residence Act. That means that there was Masonic activity going on, but it was only there for a couple of months. Uh, in April 1789, Charles Federer, a German uh, Hessian, actually a former Hessian soldier who defected, believe it or not, joins Washington's army, fights during the Revolutionary War, uh, is injured at one of the battles and then basically retires from military service. He moves to Georgetown. And if you see the picture on the screen there, Georgetown is the small little town of several, maybe 200 uh, houses on the top left of the screen there. You'll see there, that's Georgetown. Anything east of Georgetown didn't exist at that point. There were small settlements, but for the most part, Georgetown served as the epicenter of activity. And so when Federer gets to Georgetown around 1788, 1789, there is no Masonic activity there. In fact, they didn't even have a printer there in that sense, though. So that's one of the first things he does. He sets up a print shop. He does that for two reasons. Number one, of course, as I just said, there wasn't a printer, there wasn't a newspaper there. So he was satisfying a need from an economic standpoint. The second thing is he was still waiting on money from the Continental Congress, his, his pension from service. And so he needed the money. It wasn't that he was, you know, I mean, yes, of course, he was doing public service by making sure that the town had a newspaper, but he also needed the money. And that brought him in, brought him involved and engaged with other Masons. Some of them were Maryland Masons. Some of them were Virginia Masons. Some just happened to be in the area. And they all come together and they said, well, we've got enough of us. There's enough Masons here. Um, and maybe we should go out and seek a charter from the Grand Lodge of Maryland, because at the time, 1789, there was no Residence Act. 
it was still a part of Maryland. Georgetown was still a part of Maryland. And so they get their charter. Uh, April 21st, 1789, the Grand Lodge of Maryland issues the charter, and they become Lodge Number 9 of Maryland. They didn't have a, a name associated to it. It was just the Ninth Lodge of Maryland. And in fact, Ferrer and the other three or four lodge officers, when they get to Towson, Maryland, which is where the Grand Lodge meets, they submit you know, the petition. And the Grand Secretary, at this time, um, they have a, uh, a very low uh, what a, a supply, let's say, a very low supply of paper. There's a paper shortage around the area. And so what he does is he just flips the petition and s writes the entire charter, their charter, just on the back of the petition. And so we still have that document, thankfully. It survived, uh, you know, the ages. And so you can see the original charter, flip it and as, as, uh, along with the petition, which is really cool. And so that lodge really is a lodge for April, so April to December, you know, for six or seven months, a lodge in Maryland, right? Until 1789, the following year, when Congress passes the Residence Act. I think they pass it in June. And they tell George Washington, they direct George Washington, you are going to help us establish the District of Columbia. You are in charge of picking the place. You are in charge of identifying who's going to help you. You're in charge of identifying the plot of land where all the federal buildings are going to be. And so he's a busy man. I mean, he's the president of the United States. He's the first president of the United States. He's figuring it all out. So obviously he doesn't have time to do the, the minutia of we've got to hire five or six. So he hires his project managers, we'll call them project managers, really they were called the Board of Commissioners. And so this is a group of three, uh, th not three Masons, three men, three men that he knew, actually former members of the Potomac uh, Company that was in charge of creating a water travel uh, travelway from the District of Columbia to Ohio. And so he knew them. He knew that they were good guys. He trusted them. In fact, one of them was a founding father of the United States. The other, actually, no, I'm sorry. One of them was a founding father. The other was a Mason. We think there were maybe okay. two Masons, but we definitely know there was at least one Mason, uh, confirmed Mason in that group. And so these are the guys that are going to focus on doing the day-to-day -day work. He also hires a guy named Andrew Ellicott. You may have heard, you may have heard his name along with a gentleman named ben Benjamin Banneker, a, freed, uh, a freed black man, to help him survey and figure out, okay, where are we going to put everything in the district? Where are the lines going to go? Washington was a former surveyor, so he knew Ellicott. He knew that this guy does a lot of good work, so he hired him to survey and figure out the plot of land, where the district's going to be. He also hires Pierre Charles L'Enfant, French former French military, uh, he tasks him with drawing out and saying, okay, L'Enfant, I need you to help us figure out where, what is this city going to look like? We sort of have an idea where it's going to be. And he draws and he, he actually sets up a plan that's very similar to the one that you see on the screen here. In fact, the original L'Enfant plan, L'Enfant took it because he actually got into an argument with the commissioners. And so we, oh, don't wow. have, we don't have a L'Enfant plan. We have Andrew Ellicott's 
version of the L'Enfant plan. And so this is one of those versions of the L'Enfant plan. Now, what did he do? Well, he's not going to reinvent the wheel. He took what L'Enfant did and added to it, enhanced to it, made, you know, made sure that it was part of that uh, part of L'Enfant's vision. And so before L'Enfant, you know, was basically asked to leave, he drew up this idea of, well, we're going to have a national mall. We're going to have grand avenues. We're going to have these huge, well, huge relative. Now they're, you know, filled with traffic and you can barely get out of the district. <laughs> of Columbia. But he wants these huge broad avenues where people can march back and forth and around. And so he sets up this idea. Now, and and which, which totally makes sense. I completely understand, you know, where he was coming from. The, uh, the, the reason why I say the problem with that is this idea of the, you know, the Masons laying the layout of the district in a Masonic fashion, or perhaps imbuing certain signs and symbols into the, into the plan is utterly ridiculous. In fact, I know how ridiculous it is because I've, we've, I've done the research on it. And here's, here's what I'm trying to say. You, as you know, Alex, as, as, uh, as, as better as anyone, that we love to tell people our accomplishments as Freemasons. Definitely. I cannot find any mention of a Masonic plan for the District of Columbia in any of Washington's writings. I can't find it in any of L'Enfant's writings. I can't find it in any of the commissioner's writings. I can't find it in proceedings of any Masonic organization, not just the District of Columbia, but let's say Maryland or Virginia. I can't sure. find it in Andrew Ellicott's writings. I can't find it in Benjamin Banneker's writings. I can't find it in any of those four later commissioners, right? Because Washington eventually drops them and finds other commissioners. I can't find it anywhere. The big, the big little, okay, well, if you can't find it here, maybe let's check the anti-Masonic documentation, right? Because in the 1830s and 1840s, yeah. the big anti-Masonic movement would absolutely love to remove Freemasonry. So clearly someone must have written something about it. Can't find anything there. And I've been doing this for years. And I, I, again, I have, this, I, have this, uh, I have this joke with the... Um, Masonic Roundtable guys, and I said, if anyone who reads or listens to this podcast, and this includes for you as well, if you can find me any reference to Masonic streets or anything, I will pay. We'll go out to a nice dinner, you know, Washington DC <laughs> steak dinner. We're we're talking top of the line. I will pay for your dinner if you can find me something. Hell, we can even publish it together. You know, why not? So, I can't find any reference to it. So I'm racking my brain. I'm going through. I'm trying to figure out why did L'Enfant set it up the way that he set it up. Well, right. if I, if you don't mind, I'm going to move a slide over. And here is a topological version of what you saw, right? So before, we're really seeing a 2D version. We're just seeing where the layout is. Okay. Now, let's apply the topological ver a, a, a lens, right? I'll apply that lens of topography. What are we actually seeing? Well... What we're seeing is, and I'm not sure if, you know, I wish I had a little pointer on the screen so I can show you, but where you, where you get the top of the, you know, they claim that there's a star. So if you see that the star where, where the uh, White House is, you'll notice that there are two broad streets going northeast. They're okay, going yeah. From, they're going from the National Mall area, and they're going east, northeast rather, right? Well, why are they going northeast? Well, because up until, I want to say, the, the 1830s or 1840s, anything north of that original 
plot of area, that street, was all impassable. It was dirt, it was rock, it was Rock Creek Park. That's that huge fissure of, you know, water and uh, water and a mountain that you see at the top. So no one could pass through that spot. So Washington, D.C. was placed strategically from a military standpoint. Now, there was a road built later on from Georgetown. So Georgetown, again, is that little small point northwest. There was a road that hugged that mountainside. And so you actually can see it here because this is the more up-to-date modern road. But before then, there was a little road that passed through there. But again, you can't send an army through that small road. It's almost impossible to send an army that way. Sure. The other thing is, look at the bottom, bottom northeast, or sorry, southeast. Mountain, swamp, river, you cannot send an army that way. So there's only one real way to send an army into Washington, D.C. The, the, the one way is by going from the northeast down southwest. And so you see L'Enfant created these two broad roads. He also created two broad roads going down. So you're going from the, from the star, this pentagram star, going down southeast. You'll also see that there are also two or three roads. And those roads take you to the east side. You're obviously, as in terms of in terms of tactics, you're not going to send a fleet north into the Chesapeake because they would fortify the southwest part of the territory. So really, the only thing that you can do is move people in the north, and and that's why the streets are laid up that way. And here's the funny thing: a couple decades later, right, War of 1812, which is the way, which direction? Do the British come and invade and burn Washington, D.C.? Well, they enter the district from the northeast side because the British know that you can't go from the west, you can't go from the south, you can't go from the water on, on, you know, on the waterfront. The only way to move men and supplies and people was through the northeast. So during the Battle of Bladensburg, they came south. They went from north and came south and went down and then into the district. Okay. I'm done with my tactical <laughs> Now, here's another symbolic thing. What are we seeing, right? So if I'm going to go back a step, I'm going to go back two slides, and you'll see that the district sort of curves at the top, right? That's Florida Avenue. It sort of curves at the top, and then it goes down. So really, it's interesting. Like, why did they just pick this small little plot to lay out the city when there's a lot more land in the district? Well, if you look back, that little curve stops at the beginning of the mountain, that little mountain range. And then it goes down. And then the Capitol building, where does the Capitol building sit? It sits on the highest hill in the lowest valley of the District of Columbia. And so that's why L'Enfant put it at, put the Capitol, a important building of obvious significance, on the highest hill in the lowest valley in the district because at any point around that area you could theoretically without you know now there's you know modest buildings and, and not really skyscrapers but really tall buildings but if you were in georgetown you can look over and likely see the 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 capital if it looked what it looks like today back in georgetown at that time and so he was envisioning what a large 
government building would look like, the, the Capitol building, one of the most important buildings in the United States. And so that's why he placed it where he placed it. And then, of course, he placed, um, you know, the White House in a in a in a a good strategic location, of course, right sort of near the heart of the city. Um, yeah, and and so I think when you look at when you apply the topological graph on, or topological layer onto the onto the map, you really get a better sense of why L'Enfant did what he did, where the capital's placed, where Georgetown's placed and why the movement of people and troops were more important. It was, a, it was not a Masonic thing. And quite frankly, we Masons would have loved to tell you if it was a Masonic thing. Of course it was a Masonic thing. Couldn't find any documentation of it. Um, as Mark Tabert likes to say, there were just some really nice, well-meaning Masons in the early 2000s that propagated this idea of the Masonic streets of Washington, DC. It's a really good book idea, it's a really good idea for a guy named Dan Brown, but it does <laughs> it does not have any basis in, in historical fact. Interesting. So, uh, what a disappointment you are! <laughs> I, know, I know I'm I'm part of the you know I jokingly say I'm part of the skeptic school of Freemasonry, which says okay, I'm pretty sure green beans is not the only thing we really care about in Freemasonry. Let's take a look at what really happened. So yeah, I, I think I think. Um, the thing about that, though, is I'm going to show you more information, more interesting things. Yeah, definitely. On. But I think I think when we remove, when we when we focus all of our attention on the on the conspiracy or the things that don't really have basis and evidence, we miss out on all the cool, interesting stories. We miss out sure. on you know more interesting people that we'll talk about a little later on. Okay, um, let me go back a slide. I realized that I didn't show you this. And so this little meager tavern um, or this uh, drawing is for a place called the Fountain Inn in Georgetown. Unfortunately, we don't know where this inn is located. There has been, there have been many searches or attempts to find this inn. But this inn served as, you know, for those who are familiar with the Green Tavern Inn, for example, in Boston. You know, taverns served as very important places, common places, meeting places for Freemasons. And so the Fountain Inn deserves the reputation as one of these important taverns in the, in the history of Freemasonry. Not only was it a Masonic meeting place, it just so happened to be the place where George Washington lodged when he was visiting the District of Columbia and working with Juan Font and working with the commissioners. It also happened to be the place where the commissioners stayed and lodged during their you know, stay in the District of Columbia to manage the project. It just so happened that the negotiations to acquire the land for the District of Columbia happened at this tavern. It just so happened that this tavern also served as the place where they sold the first plots of land because the way that they were gonna finance this District of Columbia was they were gonna sell plots of land in the district in order to finance the construction crews for the federal buildings and for the okay. new broad avenues, right? And so Washington was balancing all these intricate complex things. And it just so happens to be that the epicenter for all this activity was at the Masonic, uh, or was at a tavern where the Masons also met. Was it a Masonic hall? No, but it was, it was the tavern where the Masons met. And in fact, the owner of the tavern the proprietor, whose name was John Souter, his son as well, John Souter Jr., both Freemasons. 
likely he served as the, the tiler for Lodge Number Nine, um, in addition to other Masonic activities that I may talk about a little later. So th this was the epicenter of activity. And, and the last point, which I, I always find very interesting, is Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, the commissioners came to Cedar's Tavern, and that's where they decided we're going to call this place Washington District of Columbia rather than, you know, New Rome or some other interesting sure. you know, name. That was the place. And it, it was a Sonic Hall. Or it was a place where Masons meet, I should say. Sure. Yeah. So that's the, and unfortunately, we really don't know where the building, you know, is. One, in the 19, I want to say 1930s, it wasn't Oliver Wendell, there was another Oliver Wendell Holmes. And I, I at first I was like, there's a, there a guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice of the Supreme Court, who was writing all these interesting histories and he was the one that really did this really good research on uh on Souter's tavern turned out later on i find out that it's not the judge of the supreme court but it's another guy named oliver wendell holmes same wording for his name and everything he does all this research and he can't find it he finds a news uh, no, no, i'm sorry not a newspaper a photograph in the library of congress of a modestly sized looking tavern picture in the 19, I want to say 1910s, maybe 1890s. And on the back of the photograph in the Library of Congress, it says John Souter's Tavern, question mark. And for a while, for several decades, people thought that's where Souter's Tavern was. But unfortunately, they did a little bit more research and they, you know, decided that that's not Souter's Tavern. But it gets perpetuated. They think, oh, this is where Souter's Tavern is. Oh, this is where Souter's Tavern is. So some places like to claim that they, they, they are on the spot where John Souter had his tavern. But unfortunately, there really is no place like that we know that can, we can confirm. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I, I wonder from looking at that sketch, it's hard to tell from here if, if yes. and you may know from reading on it more, but yeah. is it known to be a stone building or is that made of wood or? This was, uh, 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 so there was a, this, is, this comes from the reminiscences of a gentleman named Benjamin Pearly Poor. If anyone okay. knows who Benjamin Pearly Poor is, they'll know that he was a Northern Masonic jurisdiction Mason from a Scottish Rite Mason, 33rd degree. Uh, he was a very, I don't want to call him the John Stewart of Washington, D.C. journalism, but he <laughs> certainly had that sort of air. He was very popular. Uh, he was known by many Masons and non-Masons and presidents. Um, he was the first president of the Gridiron. He was actually the founder of the Gridiron Club in D.C., which is a big journal, uh, okay. a journal, uh, journal club. And so he posted this picture, uh, or he, he had someone either draw this picture. Now, we don't know if he had someone who knew what the tavern looked like and then drew it, or... He just thought this is a depiction of a tavern, so let's just make this suitor's tavern. We don't know. Unfortunately, you know, he doesn't give any more context to that picture. Cool. So take a step back. 1790, I say the, the Congress passes the, uh, the Residence Act to establish the District of Columbia. Washington hires... Ellicott, Washington's already a surveyor. He wants to hire another guy who's a really good surveyor as well. And he says, okay, 
I want you to go out and start marking and figuring out where the District of Columbia is going to be laid out. And he tells him, start in Alexandria. Why, why Alexandria? Because Alexandria is where there already is a prominent city. Um, it's the southernmost point. It's a good point to start in. And so Ellicott begins to lay out and to figure out where the 10 by 10 stretch, 10 by 10 mile stretch of the district will become. He places a marker on Jones Point in Alexandria, which is near a, a little lighthouse, I think, right on the right on the waterfront of the Potomac. Okay. So that becomes the southernmost point of the district. In order to identify or to demarcate where that place will be, he puts a stone marker. He then places a stone marker, or the commissioners rather, not him, but he, the commissioners, place a stone marker at every mile in the 10 by 10 quadrant. So what you see here is a rough, you know, this is years later, uh, decades later rather, of where the stones are located in the district uh, and where they would be populated. And you'll notice that one or two, certainly the one closest to the southern point, <laughs> the stone appears to have fallen. In fact, uh, there was an author, in, a researcher in the DC Historical Society who went out in 1908 and took photographs of these stone markers. Now, the first stone marker in 1791 was laid by Freemasons. It was, in fact, it was laid by Alexandria Washington 22, which was George Washington's, uh, one of George Washington's affiliated lodges. He, he became a Mason in Fredericksburg Lodge Number 4, but uh, he uh, joined Alexandria Washington 22 when they received their new charter. He, 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 he uh, allowed them to uh, have his name be written as the charter master, and he also participated in Masonic activities with the Lodge. Uh, nevertheless, you'll see here in this photograph, or uh, a compilation of photographs, rather, a very good student of history going out and taking photographs of these markers. It's astonishing to me. In fact, I'm, I'm, I was astonished when I first saw this. From 1791 to 1908, these stones were left completely untouched. You can see a couple of the stones fell, a couple of the stones eroded. In fact, what the researcher said, certain you know guys who had land out farmland used to cut and chisel parts of the original markers out to use for their tools or sharpening their you know, knives and other things and so they were they were just not they were just in a state of decay now fortunately after this report and after further reports from the dc historical society the daughters of the american revolution decided they want to take on a project and so they started to work to refurbish as well as protect these stones. And they set up markers as well as fences around each stone. But if you go in the districts today, and then in fact, um, you know, you can Google this, um, you know, Boundary Stones of DC, there's a website that gives you the coordinates for each. And you can go and see all where all those stones were. Now, this awesome. 1791 boundary stone at Jones Point, that serves as the first Masonic public Masonic event in the District of Columbia. The second event, which we didn't know about until 1950, was the White House, I'm oh, sorry, not 1950, it was like 1940s, you know, around the 1940s, was the White House Cornerstone. And that was done in October 1792. 
1791, so the Residence Act established the District of Columbia in 1790. 1791, they lay the first boundary stone in the corner, right? Southwest corner, or south, I'm sorry, most southern point corner of the district. Now, from a symbolic standpoint, you can see that as they're laying a cornerstone. What are they laying a cornerstone for? They're not laying a cornerstone for a building. They're laying a cornerstone for the District of Columbia itself. There's a, you know, there's a symbolism there. 1792, uh, as I said, in October, the Freemasons, members of that Georgetown Lodge that I referenced before, lay the cornerstone of the White House. Now, there's only one reference to the White House cornerstone, and it was found during the Truman renovations, when Truman was so interested in collecting as much information on the history of the White House as possible that he sent you know, notices to historians and the Smithsonian and to, you know, across the United States and said, we're trying to find anything you got on the White House. We're trying to find anything you got on White House history. And they find this, this small, unassuming little notice in a newspaper in Charleston from 1792. And it basically lays out in good detail the event and what happened at the White House. And so this was a letter, it was an extract of a letter from someone from Charleston sending it. They, they were an eyewitness to the event. They were sending this information to their friend in Philadelphia. Or reverse, they were in Philadelphia, they were sending it to Charleston. And so, you know, at the time, and this is very common, you know, around this time, especially during the colonial sure. time uh, with um, Benjamin Franklin, Frank, the, the post office also served as the printing press area. And so many times newspapers would print and say, you know, John Smith, you have a letter here from so-and-so. And so unfortunately, there were instances where the guy who ran the printing press and the newspaper office went through people's mail. And so this was a good enough story that he said, well, I kind of really want to publish this. This is really important. Now, do we know if that's what that was the reason why he did that? No. But I'm just telling you that, that that's the rationale for why it would be posted in a newspaper, why someone's correspondence would be posted in a newspaper. And so you see here, October 20th, 1792 was the letter written, but the Cornerstone event happened on September, uh, sorry, Saturday the 13th. So uh, October 13th. And that first paragraph, and I actually removed the top part because it was not related. So the first paragraph there, it says, you know, the Freemasons met at Souter's Tavern in Georgetown. They then form, they formed a procession composed of Freemasons, the commissioners, the, the commissioners that George Washington, you know, hired gentlemen from the town and neighborhood, and then different artificers. I love that line, different artificers. They all marched from Georgetown to the White House or the, the location of where the White House would be. They laid the cornerstone, a gentleman named Peter Casanova, brother Peter Casanova, a Spanish merchant whose uncle, I believe, yes, whose uncle ran guns for the American troops during the Revolutionary War. Wow. Casanova came to Georgetown with, uh, according to one uh, report on him, with about $200 in his pocket. And then he started a, a business. He started a, um, you know, uh, just a mercantile business. He sold lemons, he sold fruits and vegetables and meats and canned, you know, canned goods. Well, maybe not canned goods, that's too early. Um, but he, you know, he was a merchant in Georgetown. 
barely spoke English, according to newspaper reports. He had a very thick Spanish accent. So imagine Ricky Ricardo laying a cornerstone. Um, that's how I, how I explain it. But Casanova lays the cornerstone. Two years later, he becomes the mayor of Georgetown. So he clearly you know, was a prominent in, 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 in the town. At the top right, yep, top right of the screen, there's an inscription, a plate was engraved and placed underneath the cornerstone. And that inscription said George Washington, you know, Thomas, Thomas Johnson, Dr. Stewart, Daniel Carroll, the three commissioners, James Hoban, architect, Colin Williamson, master mason. Now, master mason, what they're referring to is the stonemason, the, the, the guy working on sure. the foundations, right? And then, of course, James Hoban, architect, not only architect, but Freemason, charter master, federal lodge number one. And um, that lodge is the second lodge in the District of Columbia, right? So you have lodge number nine of Georgetown exists before the establishment of the District of Columbia. And then there's a little bit of a separation, right? So these masons come to DC, stonemasons come to DC, uh, carpenters, sawyers, all these in individuals who are coming to build to start to establish the District of Columbia. Well, it just so happened that 10 of those guys were masons. But they didn't have time to go to evening meetings in Georgetown, and it would take them three or four hours just to get from their area in, uh, near the White House construction zone to Georgetown anyway. By the way, it takes three or four hours to get through D.C. traffic, so nothing's really changed. But I mean, <laughs> the idea is they, they wanted to have their own Masonic engagement activity near the White House. And so they established their own lodge. In fact, they reached out to Georgetown Lodge Number 9 and got a charter through the lodge, not through the Grand Lodge, which is an interesting story. And then, you know, the following year, they actually do the right thing and then go to Maryland, request a charter, and then they get their charter. But for a couple months, they're operating as a Masonic Lodge at the White House construction zone. And so... Uh, that that's who James Hoven is when we're talking about James Hoven. Um, and then afterwards, as it says, as you move down, it tells you a little bit about the, they return, you know, they completed their, their duties. They returned to Souter's Tavern for an elegant dinner or a banquet. And here are the, because we're Masons, we've got to love to talk about our toasts. So here are the toasts, the, I think there were 14 or actually 15, 16 or 17 toasts that were uh, performed that night. And so some of them are interesting. Some of them are, you know, the general, you know, to the United States, to the president of the United States, to the District of Columbia. Uh, my favorite is number 10 to Thomas Paine. He, they don't say Thomas Paine, but they said to the author of the rights of man and common sense, which is kind of cool. Fair Daughters of America, General Wayne, you know, all the all the folks that you would you would you'd assume. So for 100 plus years, we didn't know about this newspaper account. We didn't know, we assumed George Washington was there. Some, some Masonic authors in the 1850s and 1870s wrote, well, we assumed George Washington was there, even though in his diary, he was not there. He was in either in Virginia or uh, in Philadelphia or New York, I don't remember where, uh, but he was not there at that time. Until the following year, because we Masons love doing things in threes, 1791, the, the Boundary Stone, White House in 1792. Oh, sorry. Here's a, here's a stone from the White House, and I'll talk about that in a second. 1793 is when George Washington actually does want to participate. So he does, he's got the time, he's already in town, 
and so he participates in the laying of the cornerstone for the United States Capitol. So that's the, the three big things, the Boundary Stone, the White House, the Capitol in 1793, and they do that in three conse in consecutive years. And so the um, that event, big event, just like the Georgetown cornerstone for the White House, you know, the whole city shuts down or whatever is the city at that point. It's just a, right. couple, a couple small, you know, buildings near the White House and near the Capitol and then Georgetown, 200, 300 buildings there. And so the whole city, sh city shuts down. There's a big procession to the site of the Capitol. They lay the cornerstone in Masonic tradition. Colin Williamson, the gentleman that I referenced in that uh, in that newspaper clipping, the Master Mason, the night, the day before rather, it's it's it was it was written in the newspaper account. He came to the site in Masonic regalia. He set up the cornerstone himself and got it ready for the next day. So there was a little bit of a ceremony going on. You know, he 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 was of course he was a Mason. He was uh, involved in Masonic activities. In fact, he was a member of Federal Lodge as well with James Hoban. So we know that there was that connection there. Um, and Washington performs his Masonic duty. Now, at one point, someone says, oh, well, wasn't he, you know, Grandmaster or something? No, the Grand Lodge of Maryland, the Grandmaster pro tem of that, uh, that Masonic body was there. And so he was representing the Grand Lodge. And so the idea is when he gave the gavel to George Washington in order to go down and perform the, the service, some Masons say, well, that means that he was Grandmaster for a little bit of time when he was doing that. I'm not going to go into the the, <laughs> the, 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 the the fist fight in terms of who, if he was a Grandmaster or not at that time. It doesn't really matter. What matters is he laid the cornerstone. He was in his Masonic regalia. He knew it was important to participate in this event. He knew that laying the cornerstone of the Capitol was, of course, a very big and symbolic moment. And so that's why he participated. Um, did I cut you off, Alex? I thought you were about to say something. No, no. Uh, I, you, just thinking, though, you, you're mentioning the guy yeah. being the night before, setting up the cornerstone, setting up all the stuff. And it was yeah. just making me think, you know, how masonry is just kind of transparent through all the years. Because there's always that one guy that <laughs> is behind yeah. Yeah. everything we do. And, you know, sometimes those guys are just those unsung heroes. So I was really happy that you brought that up because those oh. guys never get their light. Okay, you ready for this? Uh, yeah, let's go gonna, for it. I was going to mention it a little later. Colin Williamson was fired. Ooh. He was let go by the commissioners. Why? Well, he forgot to build a basement in the Capitol. George Washington asked him to build a basement for the Capitol. He didn't do that. But the funny thing is, the building's foundation survived the fire when the British came and built and burned down the building. Right. So Colin Williamson, the foundation of the White House, the bottom level, as well as whatever, whatever was left of the Capitol building, survived because Colin Williamson's craftsmanship kept you know the wood of course was destroyed but the the, the sure. foundation and the, and i think the north or the west side of the white house wall remained intact after the british burned it down so that was such good quality craftsmanship that that stuff at least you know kept up 
And so that's where we get this idea of the White House because of the paint and, you know, they had to paint it white afterwards. Well, what were they painting? They were painting the reconstructed part of Colin Williamson's old foundation on old stones. And so the reason I say that or the reason I mention that is that's a, it's a good uh, segue, doing a great job with the segues of about the stones. And so during the White House renovations under the Truman administration, one of the workmen reach out to Truman's assistant. I believe his name was Henry Vaughn, which is one of his personal assistants or personal aides for those who are very pedantic who are going to listen to this. Um, and Truman's aide thought, well, that's really interesting. I got to show this to the president. And so Truman, of course, Master Mason, past grandmaster, he knows his stuff. He yeah. looks at it and goes, well, this has to be because the foundation survived the burning of the White House in 19, or 1814, rather. He goes, well, this has to be Masonic. It's gotta be, it's gotta be Masonic. And so he says, how many of these do we have? Well, tell the workmen that cut those things, cut them out and extract them and we'll hold on to them for a little bit. And then we'll figure out what to do with them. Because what he, he his goal was, let's share this stuff. We gotta let people know about this because this is crazy. There's here it is, Masonic markings, tangible proof of Freemasonry in our hands. Yeah. Now, if you do your research, as Mark Tabert has done, you know, five or six years, or must have been maybe five or six years ago, perhaps a decade ago, he had an exhibit of these White House stones at the memorial. And they were able to, using their knowledge of who was there, because there's actually, there were about seven or eight stonemasons, stone craftsmen that came from Edinburgh, Scotland. From a lot, I think it was the Lodge of the Journeyman number eight and number nine. And they had records with some of the brethren, and they were operative masons, operative stonemasons, and they had a record of their, uh, of their marks, of their Masonic marks. So those who are listening to the podcast know about Masonic marks as part of the Royal Arch degree. Well, some of these operative masons had their marks. And so Mark and other historians were able to figure out, okay, here are the, here, we know that, you know, at least nine of these were Masons. And then if you look at the old surveys and the old census around that time, which by the way, James Hoban is the one architect of the White House, Freemason, master of Federal Lodge number one, was in charge of organizing the first census in the District of Columbia. Why? Because he was in charge of around 150 workmen in the district. At that time, that was almost one fourth of the people living in the district. So they decided, well, you're in charge of this project, you might as well also do the census. So sure. we know about 150 stone workers doesn't mean that they were craftsmen, expert craftsmen. We know there's at least 150 were, were working in the cap, uh, Capitol and the White House. And so we're not really sure. My expert guess is not all of those stones are Masonic in nature. Some of them were done by Freemasons who had marks. Most of them were likely not Masons. Okay. It doesn't really matter. So this might be a good time to throw this in because yeah. uh, past Grandmaster Michael Stoops had added a comment early on here. Sure. And uh, we've had uh, Brother James Jack from Scotland, I know has mentioned this several times as well, but uh, most worshipful Michael Stoops says, Scottish operative lodges at the building of our capital. Uh, can our guest elaborate? I know Brother James Jack has said in his research, it's been proven that Scottish Freemasons were brought in Absolutely. To build the White House. There yes. is truth to that. That is absolutely true. In fact, there is uh, 
written, written documentation. John Souter, remember I told you about that guy? He yes. Was, he was the tavern, one of the tavern owners. Well, it just so happened that Souter was cousin of Colin Williamson. And so when George Washington, the commissioners, were trying to find guys because they were looking for stonemasons, this is an okay. arduous, difficult task. You know, you, they couldn't find a lot of people. George Walker, I think he, he there's a, a businessman named George Walker who was living, I think, in Philadelphia, or he was a Philadelphia merchant. At the time, he was in, in England, and either the commissioners or George Washington sent out a notice to George saying, can you help us out while you're in London, while you're in Paris, while you're in Europe, can you help us find people to recruit? Well, at the time, uh, there was a, uh, a, not a glut, but there was actually a, not a lot of work going on in Edinburgh, Scotland. And so apparently George Walker went to one of the operative groups that just so happened to meet uh, in a, who were Masons. They also met at this lodge called Lodge of the Journeyman, which still exists. It's still there. You can go and, you know, engage with those brothers over, over in Scotland. And so they had about seven or eight of them accepted the job. And so they traveled over to the United States and for, you know, several years, at least four or five years during the initial, you know, run of construction, were there performing, uh, you know, the stonework, the heavy stonework, and also teaching, right? They were teaching the next group of guys who were coming into work. We do sure. know, of course, in records that slaves were brought in. And so, of course, you know, there was, uh, there was in fact, lots of going on about teaching the, the slave labor how to cut and haul the stone. They pulled the stone from a aquia quarry in Virginia. And they, as part of the commissioner's work, they had to acquire the quarry. They had to set up and, you know, move all the stone up to the District of Columbia. So it wasn't like the stone was a mile away. It was several miles away. And they actually had to ferry them up uh, uh, through the Potomac River and up into the District of Columbia to wow. perform that. So it was very arduous and, and very, you know, heavy work. Yeah, no small feat. Absolutely. There was a gentleman named Middleton Belt. I just love that name. Middleton Belt was the food purveyor. He was also a member of Federal Lodge Number no. 1. Um, the physician, one of the assistant physicians, I believe the main physician and assistant physician were also Freemasons. Again, members of Federal Lodge Number no. 1. So the work zone had a lot of masons in it. And what are you doing after a long day of you know, 10 hours of labor, of really intense labor? That was, Freemasonry served as a social, as a, a time to unwind and relax. So it, it wasn't just, oh, we're making masons. It was just, you know, we've got to do something. We're out in the wilderness practically, right? Because the district, it wasn't the district. And so Freemasonry served as a thing that they can do as well, a social element in addition to all the things that they had to work with. And work and do. I hope I answered that question. Yeah, uh, no, you nailed yeah. it. Uh, Brother Stoops did throw in there. He goes, "No stone in a swamp." <laughs> yeah. Funny thing about that. Technically, I've heard this, and I, I've, I've done a little research on this. The District of Columbia is not a swamp. It has characteristics that look like a swamp and appear like okay. a swamp, but the district is not a swamp. And I've been admonished by members of the D.C. Historical Society for even attempting to say it was a swamp. And they were like, oh, these Masons, they know nothing about the district. And it's like, okay, well, you know, excuse me, but 
anyone in the United States hears swamp and drain the swamp and all these things, it's, it's in part of our legacy. You know, it's part of the, a part of the history. And in fact, I'm pretty sure congressmen in the 1840s and 1850s called it a swamp as well. So, you know, that's my, that's my rant. I'll end of rant on the swamp. Go ahead. You gotta be careful with those words, man. I, we, we did an episode about a, a abandoned Masonic temple in Reno, Oklahoma. Okay. And I was there on a Sunday and to my interpretation, it yeah. was a ghost town. I mean, we right. literally saw a tumbleweed go down the block, no one in sight on that live. I said, ghost town, probably 10 times. Uh-oh. And it went viral. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, that town hates me to this day. So. Oh no! Well, I'm, I'm, my ghost I'm, town I'm, is your swamp. Yes, I, I'm sure I haven't made any friends with the debunking of the you know the the streets are you know set up in a masonic way. I'm sure I've ticked off a couple masons on that. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know the thing is, truth, you know, facts, resources, references, again. I still have that open invitation. If you find any reference to it, I'll buy you dinner. I'll even go to like some fancy the Willard or some really nice hotel. We'll go to a nice place for a nice dinner. So if you can, if you can find any documentation, I'm happy to receive it. That is fantastic. Well, we are at the nine o'clock hour. So if you don't mind, we'll take a quick pause here. And my brother, if you would be so kind, would you mind offering up our toast for this evening? Sure. Um, why don't we toast? Uh, so uh, the, there were many Masons that worked in the government, many Masons that helped build the Capitol and the White House. So perhaps let's do it to the, the Masons who erected our important and noble institutions, to those brethren. To those brethren. So Alex, you'll tell me how much time I have left afterwards as well. We're, we're open, man. So we'll, we'll just continue and just keep rolling. All right. Well, I've got a little, I have one or two more stories and then I'm happy to stop and pause. And if people are already, you know, already out of here, then that's fine. Um, so as I mentioned to you about the Capitol or, you know, the white house and the boundary stones, there were three important Masonic events in my research. I, through my lodge, it so happened that the lodge maintains two photographs. And I'm working with the Smithsonian to confirm this. But we believe that these are the two oldest photographs ever taken of Freemasons, at least Masons that were present at the cornerstone laying with George Washington of the United States Capitol. The guy to the left with his secretary jewel on, a guy named John Muntz. In fact, he was the clerk for Georgetown since the, since the town was founded. In fact, he served as the clerk of Georgetown for 75 years. So this guy was in his, he was, he was 85 when this photograph was taken. Wow. I think he also has a little bit of Native American blood in him when you, when you take a look at that. Photograph. Yeah, I was kind of wondering. You can tell yeah. by the, the photo there. Yeah. The picture is still in decent condition. We actually had to get the DC Historical Society to help us frame this because it's a, it's a, it's a daguerreotype. The a daguerreotype of this size is actually pretty big. It's, it's, it's about, you know, six by nine. It's a huge. Oh, wow. Picture. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's, uncommon. It's, and, it's, and it's very good condition, quite frankly. Guy on the right, I think he's got his uh, senior warden jewel on. That guy was James Thompson. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's, that's a master's jewel. My goodness. Uh, James Thompson, he served as the senior warden. The reason I say senior warden was he served as the senior warden the year where he participated in the George Washington uh, cornerstone lane for the Capitol. And so that's him in his regalia as master of that lodge number nine. Um, and so it's really cool that those things exist, that we have not only like written evidence, but we have pictorial evidence of gentlemen who not only participated in Freemasonry, but participated in one of the most seminal moments in American Freemasonry. Um, right. And, and we're, we're working on trying to see, you know, if we can get those displayed at, at, you know, perhaps the portrait gallery or somewhere where we can talk about that and share that information with, with non-Masons as well. So quick question on those photos. And yeah. this is kind of a, a side tangent here. Oh, no, go ahead. Um, but often as we look at these old photos by the collars, we're able to tell if it's Masonic or maybe another order that's you mm -hmm. know, closely related. Mm -hmm. I haven't personally seen the flat ended uh, collars like this before. Is that common in this era that you've seen? Yes, to okay. a certain degree. So these photographs were taken in 1856, 1854, gotcha. 1856. Now that's very early or early from, you know, according to the Smithsonian in terms of the, the technology for the garotype. I don't think, I think that that was, in terms of the regalia, I think that was consistent with the 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 the, um, the regalia of that time. Okay, uh, wonderful. Again, we can reach out to some, you know, experts on regalia. Again, I'm not an expert on regalia. I'm not <laughs> right. an expert on Washington, D.C. Freemasonry. I can, I can only collect as much information on regalia, but I'm pretty sure we have someone, you know, from a fraternal organization that can help us out with that. Most but definitely. When we reviewed this with the Smithsonian, with folks at the Smithsonian, they did say that that is consistent. You know, these do appear, these appear to be very legitimate. The the they actually did a review. They took a look at the you know the backside and everything. And they said you know this is this is consistent with the types of photographs we've seen at the time. What is unique Wonderful. about this is this is the first or perhaps the earliest we've known of of Masonic you know photographs, especially about those who witnessed George Washington's, you know, laying the cornerstone. Very cool. Okay, the last person I'm going to talk about, we now move a couple decades. Um, why do we talk about this guy? I talk about this guy because I consider him one of the most important Freemasons in the United States, period, full stop. This guy was a gentleman named Benjamin B. French. If you're a okay. Scottish Rite Mason, you may know that he was a he was the first sovereign grand inspector general of the district of columbia if you are a knight templar or if you're interested in knights templar you will see him on the left hand side there he's got uh, his regalia on because at one point in fact not at one point during one of the most pivotal points in american history he served as the grand master of the grand encampment of knights templar during the civil war so he he was the one that had to manage you know talk about the grand encampment now but imagine you have to do it during a civil war so he was the one that was in charge uh, of, of managing the organization during the civil war he was i think based on his and thankfully we have his journals at the, at the library of congress he was one of the most prolific 
Freemasons. He was one of the most engaged Freemasons, and he was also one of the most um, connected Freemasons with the United States government. He was from New Hampshire. In fact, that's where he started Freemasonry. He, he joined a lodge in New Hampshire. He eventually, you know, uh, became a deputy grand, I believe, um, uh, deputy grand master for his district. He then got a job as the clerk, in, uh, as one of the clerks, an assistant clerk in the House of Representatives. So he moved down to D.C. to, to fill that role. During that time, uh, during his first 10 years of free, uh, sorry, not 10 years of Freemasonry, during his first 10 years in DC, he really didn't focus any time on Freemasonry. He, his roommate, a gentleman named Franklin Pierce, who eventually become President Franklin Pierce, and him really focused on their jobs, you know, keeping their job, connecting themselves in the, you know, the DC politic, right? A position that I'm not interested in at all doing, but, you know, he really <laughs> liked doing that. He really liked the politics. Um, during that process, he met an unbelievable amount of interesting people. I mean, uh, you know, Charles Dickens at one point, he met Charles Dickens out of all people. It's, it's striking. It's amazing. Um, he went through the Civil War. Uh, at the time, he served as the Commissioner of Public Buildings. So what was his job? He, at one point, was serving as a clerk in the House of Representatives, and then through his political connections, his back and forth, meeting with the presidents, engaging with them, President Lincoln eventually appoints him as the commissioner of public buildings. Now, he served that position in previous administrations, but he only served it for a little bit of time because at one point he was associated with the Know Nothing Party, which was um, a, uh, not militant, but it was a rabid anti-immigration party. They were very interested in, you know, certain political movements that aren't necessarily that great. And so he had to resign from his position uh, during Franklin Pierce's administration, actually, which created a rift between his old roommate and him. But during the Civil War, it, it, what happened was, uh, because of his politics, he at one point you know, was serving as a know-nothing, right? As part of this know-nothing collection, he, he was labeled as a member of the know-nothing party. He lost his job. He grew discontent with the Democrats. What does he do? Well, he says, screw this. These Democrats are going to kill. They kick me out of Congress. Even the Masons voted it. He wrote in his diary, even the Masons actually helped vote me out of Congress, his position in Congress. Wow. So he decides... Well, there's this new and interesting Republican Party that I hear about. And so he becomes the president of the district's Republican Association. When does he do it? He does it during their first run. And who was the first president that they put in nomination for the Republican Party? A guy named President or a guy named Abraham Lincoln. So during his run, during Abraham Lincoln's campaign, Benjamin B. French becomes the spokesman, the hoorah, let's get this guy elected in Washington, D.C. And so he serves as a, a critical point in Washington to really make sure that Lincoln becomes president. During that time, as a, as a reward for him helping out as the president of the Republican Association in D.C., he gets to be in charge of planning the inauguration for Lincoln. Mind you, he is a past grandmaster of D.C. He gets engaged in Freemasonry. He, he does a lot of stuff. And so um, he now becomes perhaps the most high-ranking Masonic official 
in Lincoln's part in, in Lincoln's administration. And then afterwards, several months later, um, when after Lincoln's inauguration, Lincoln says, "Okay, I know that you've been waiting for a while. I know that you know you're interested in getting your job back, so I'm going to make you commissioner of public buildings again." Now, what is the commissioner of public buildings? Now it is a job that serves uh, the architect of the Capitol serves that position now. But basically, he was in charge of the Capitol grounds, the Capitol building, you know, the Library of Congress, the side executive office buildings. He was in charge of those of those buildings. He was in charge of hiring maintenance staff and making sure things were paid for. In fact, during his time in Congress, he set up the first electrical lights, the lamp, not electrical, I'm sorry, the lamp posts and everything. Um, and so it is during this time, during this period where he is at the height, the zenith of his power. He um, helps Lincoln, of course, in management of his duties. When the Gettysburg commemoration or dedication to the battlefield occurs, not only does Benjamin B. French attend the ceremony, but Lincoln appoints him as one of the marshals. And so in this photograph, Benjamin B. French is at the Lincoln's, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. So he actually, there, he is, I, I, unfortunately, I don't have a little, I used to have a little star right above where his pick, where he was, but he's actually there. I know where he is. He's sort of off. If you look at the center of the photograph, he's towards the, to the right of, of center, and he's wearing a sash. And there's two, and he's standing next to another gentleman, and they're both wearing their sashes. He's a chief marshal. In addition to that, he writes the song that gets sung by the choir for the dedication. This is the Grand Master of the Knights Templar. This is past Grand Master of Washington, D.C. This is a guy who was a New Hampshire Mason that came to D.C. and really elevated the District of Columbia. I think he was also one of the main... Um, uh, how do I want to say this? He was one of the main sort of, the, he sort of sowed the foundation for this idea of we can bring Americanism, we can bring what are the values of being an American, and how do we bring masonry into those values? What are the values that we share? So this whole idea of, you know, sometimes there's a criticism of, well, you know, masonry is too patriotic. We're very patriotic. Well, where did that come from? It certainly didn't come from the anti-Masonic period, right? Because when at that point, anti-Masons were, or Masons were losing their jobs for being Masons, for being outed as Masons. So Benjamin French, I believe my thesis, or my hypothesis is, French in his position, in his ability to engage with all these really important people in Congress and, and the White House during his position as Commissioner of Public Buildings, he really establishes what it means to be a patriot Freemason. There's a really great, entry in his diary of, uh, I forgot his, I want to say it's General Anderson. Anderson was the gentleman who was protecting Fort Sumter when I think it was, was it Beauregard? There was, I forgot the Confederate soldier, or the Confederate troops who attacked Fort Sumter to launch the Civil War. But Anderson visited the White House uh, one evening. Benjamin B. French was there, of course, because he was curious of meeting the guy, the famous you know, general who tried to defend Fort Sumter. And in his, in his diary entry, French, and I'm paraphrasing, says something to the effect of, 
General Anderson visited the White House today. We had dinner with him along with the president. I sat next to Mrs. Lincoln. After the dinner, we sat in um, you know, one of the salons and I was um, pleased to hear that he was a Royal Arch Mason. And so they spent the rest of the evening talking about Freemasonry. This is the guy. That's cool. Who was defending Fort Sumter. Everyone was asking him, wow, what, what happened? What was going on? And Benjamin French wanted to spend the time. Okay, well, so you say you're a Royal Arch Mason. Tell me more. How, what, did, what did Masonry, you know, yeah, I mean, this, this is just amazing. It's amazing. Okay, last story. I'll give you my last Benjamin French story. I'm sorry, I'm going to give you two Benjamin French stories, but the first one's going to be very quick. Benjamin French, while he was serving as the clerk of the House of Representatives, is reached out, contacted by Samuel Morse, the guy who does the telegraph, or invented the patent for the telegraph, or one of the patents for the telegraph. And he's reaching out to Benjamin French because like, he's like, listen, I need this seed money to build the first telegraph from Washington to Baltimore. We really need to get this done. These congressmen are really kicking my butt, and I really need this to get through. We really need this funding for this project to work. And so apparently French is like, okay, well, I mean, if you think this is going to work, then I'm going to try to help out. He goes to the president of the you know, House of Representatives at the time. He says, hey, listen, is there anything we can do? These guys really need the money. And so what the, um, the, House, the Speaker of the House says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Towards the end of the day, when there's a lull in, in business activity, we're going to slide in the appropriation during just some random appropriation and try to sneak it in. And he said, and, and as the clerk, you're the one that's, Benjamin French as the clerk is the one that's standing up there and reading it. So he's like, just read it really quickly and slide it through. And that's, <laughs> and that's what they do. And so Benjamin, uh, Benjamin B. French helps Morse get the appropriations to establish the first uh, telegraph line, the telegraph line that starts in Washington, D.C. and goes to Baltimore, that first telegraph line. Of course, the telegraph becomes an important part of the Civil War. And in fact, telecommunications really starts because of that, right? And so it was in, in part associated with Benjamin B. French. Samuel Morse was so pleased with Benjamin B. French, was so thankful that he was able to do that, that Benjamin B. French becomes the first president of the Samuel Morse Telegraph Company. Wow. So during that time, it's Benjamin B. French, a past grandmaster of DC, Knight Templar grandmaster, who is doing that in addition to serving as the president of the Republican Association and in, in addition to serving as the president of the Telegraph Company. I mean, this is insane. Last, last story, and it, it ends with Pike. Albert Pike loses his, uh, really his nationality, right? Because the South, after he leaves the Confederate, you know, he is, he is removed from Confederate uh, office. He, uh, uh, what's the word? He's not dis he's not disbarred. There's another word for it. Um, he he resigns his commission in in the Confederate office. Okay. He now is a man without a country, right? Because the North is obviously not going to take him. The South is certainly not going to take him because he's going to he's he's being sought after on charges. So he flees, and in fact, for a time, he lives in Canada. And he reaches out to people in Congress or people in Congress as well as the president after the war to try to get a pardon because during President Andrew Johnson's first um, you know pardon he pardons all officers that were engaged 
low-level officers and soldiers who were engaged in the Civil War in the South, because he wanted to really bring in this reconstruction effort. Let's, let's just pardon everybody and let's just move on. Well, Pike wasn't serving as a general at the end of the war. He already resigned his commission. So he was in this weird position where he can't get, he can't get, a, he can't get a pardon. And so he's got to reach out to president and reach out to all these guys. Well, who, who does he reach out to? He reaches out to Benjamin B. French. And so Benjamin B. French, he knew before because Benjamin B. French was the guy that brought Pike into the Knights Templar. And as and they have a really nice relationship, they engage, you know. And so to me, I find it so fascinating that Benjamin B. French at the end of the Civil War helps secure Albert Pike's pardon. Benjamin B. French during the Civil War, by the way, serving as Commissioner of Public Buildings under Lincoln, presents Albert Pike with this beautiful sword that says, you know, Confederate States of America on it. And during the war, Benjamin B. French helps him get the pardon. Albert Pike is initiated into free, or well, he was already initiated into Freemason. Benjamin French makes him a Knights Templar. Later on, Albert Pike gives him the 33rd degree and then also makes him an honorary inspector general. And so there's this weird like connection between Benjamin B. French, Albert Pike. They're both on different sides. They're both supporting each other. Here are guys that are fundamentally viewing things differently, but they came together and they had a really nice right. So I, I think, and the reason I give that is because we talked about it before about the, about the statue and the context here. I think there's, you gotta, one of the great things about the history and reviewing history is that you gotta see things in context. And I think, you know, as people are looking at more about Benjamin French, I encourage you to read his diary. I encourage you to take a look at more of his, his work. I've published a lot of stuff on French. And, and so, you know, um, when you start to see those connections, you start to see that it's a little bit more complicated than there's this, you know, this guy in this statue. Um, do I condone his actions? No, but it's really interesting that right. during this presentation, we can talk about him, then I can talk about a guy who helped establish the first telegraph company, who also part of Gettysburg, and, you know, and then he's also, he was friends with a guy named Albert Pike. So um, with that, Alex, I'll, I'll end it. That was the story I wanted to share before, and I'm happy to answer any questions if there's anyone still on the meeting, still on the call. Oh, we still got guys. We're not getting a whole bunch of questions, but okay. uh, we did have a brother talk about the, uh, the flat collars. He said he was looking at that same thing as well. Oh, cool. And then we got my real fake name <laughs> over on, on YouTube. Uh, he popped up and said, I am not so taken, but I do love history. So, well, we welcome you. Anyone that loves history is, uh, is welcome on the show here. So thanks Absolutely. for joining in. Now, one cool thing, I'm going to swap over if you don't mind and share oh. my screen. Um, Brother Justin Staley from my lodge, who is a regular fan and always helping out here, uh, he actually found those original uh, sphinx blocks that you were talking about awesome that's which it. is cool. really cool in in my weird obsession because now you get this neat view of the town surrounding yes. uh, the house of the temple at Absolutely. that time period so we've got this one on this side and then the opposite view isn't well. that so cool and then so it's they spent so cool. the entire time just you know there was there's a master craftsman just chiseling away getting that ready organizing it preparing it i mean it's just so interesting. Library yeah, I, I mean, you know, from, from today's time period, when I think we're so used to seeing things 
molded, you know, yeah. especially with that size. To see this plain block and then to compare at what it is today is really breathtaking about these guys' skill and what they did there with their hands right. and really kind of makes it hurt that much more to see what just happened to it. Yeah. Well, I think the good news is that there are, you know, thank goodness for technologies and advancements technologies. There are ways in which we can fix it, we can improve it. Definitely. And I think, I think, you know, Freemasonry is not the buildings that we have. It's the people. It's the it's the interactions. It's the engagements. The stories that I was just sharing with you. And I think I think we can definitely find ways to fix the sphinxes. But at the same time, we got to make sure that we're we as good masons are going out and propagating the values of the fraternity so the public sees us as good people in an order to never desecrate masonic things like that again you know so i think i think there's a little bit that we need to do to go out there and to be good masons you yeah. know to engage the funny thing is and i'm sorry i'm going on this tangent i apologize no. uh, the funny thing is i think there is a misconception it's one of the myths of freemasonry which is we we should not be going out there. We shouldn't be talking about things. We shouldn't be now. I'm not talking about marketing and engaging with people. I'm not. I'm, I'm not talking about um, you know fun. I'm not, I'm not talking about like uh, what do they call it? Uh, getting new membership. I'm not talking about membership engagement. I'm talking about public events. So in my research in the District of Columbia, there were a hundred and something plus Masonic events, public cornerstone laying ceremonies. Were they reaching out and saying, hey, you should be a Mason? No, they did it. Their actions were, let's go out there, let's wear our regalia, let's lay the cornerstones of these important buildings, and let that be the marketing push, right? Let, we don't have to say, hey, if you're interested in Freemasonry, come join us. It was, who are these guys and what are they doing? And so it's so funny that guys were like, we shouldn't be doing this stuff. We shouldn't be posting stuff on social media. We shouldn't be doing videos. And it's like, that's the complete opposite. Masons were very public. Masons were doing public Masonic ceremonies. They were doing public cornerstones. Their proceedings were published in newspapers. I mean, I, I told you before, the first Mason in the District of Columbia, the first Masonic Lodge, was made or organized by a newspaper printer, and he was publishing Masonic activities. He was showing people what was going on in, in meetings, and it was public, it was positive, it was supportive. And so this idea, this concept of like, we, we, we've got to lock ourselves into this you know, private place, and we've got to do our meetings in private, and we can't tell people about where we're going. It's like, you know, I think you're missing something. You're missing what the, 1700 or 18th century masons were doing so a hundred percent man well i want to thank you from the bottom of my heart so much for yeah. coming on this evening you dropped so much knowledge that i am going to have to go back and rewatch and unpack half this stuff and i'm sure we're going to have follow-up conversations but sure. you've got a wealth of knowledge to give so i hope we can get you back on the show again one day and go sure. through some more with you i appreciate but, yeah, no, thank you so much. Do you have any uh, shameless plugs or anything you'd like to give? Um, you know, just uh, happy to connect on Twitter, on Facebook, on all the social medias. Uh, my name is Chris Ruley. Again, my last name is R-U-L-I. I'm sure you can find me on social media. Um, and feel free to connect. If you know if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I try to be active on Twitter, but, you know, most of our Facebook community or Masonic community seems to be more on Facebook. So happy to engage on Facebook as well. 
Fantastic. Well, my brother, I truly appreciate you. I thank you so much for everything you shared with us this evening. And to all of you joining us live this evening, I want to thank you as well. And until next time, keep illuminating our past. We'll see you later. Have a good night, everyone.